Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com changelog. This episode is brought to you by GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server from ThoughtWorks that lets you model and visualize complex deployment workflows with ease. GoCD helps you automate and streamline your build, test, release cycle for reliable continuous delivery, promote trusted artifacts, see how your workflow really works, deploy any version anytime, run and rock your test, compare builds, take advantage of plugins, and so much more. Head to gocd.org changelog to learn more. Changelog Media, you're listening to the Changelog. We feature the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stokoviak, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. On today's show, we're talking with Ozan One, President of Bradfield School of Computer Science, about his recent blog post, You Are Not Google, which was the number one link in Changelog Weekly, issue 159. If you're not subscribed, head to changelog.com weekly. This show is full of wisdom and advice, and given Oz's background with teaching software developers, we had to get him on the show to talk through the details of this post. So Oz, you wrote an article recently called You Are Not Google, and it resonated and reverberated across the software developer uh, link sphere, or whatever that is. We all read it, we all talked to talk about it. Why did that resonate so much with so many people? Look, I was actually a little bit surprised. I thought there'd be a, an undercurrent of, you know, old people, let's say, who uh, nodded along and they're like, yes, finally, somebody's speaking truth to the young ones. But uh, it actually, yeah, did surprisingly well across the board. Um, a lot of people reached out afterwards being like, uh, you know, I, I've had this conversation with my manager or I inherited this code base or whatever. Um, we're really struggling with exactly the thing that you're talking about. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you put it out there. So I think, I think we're just getting to the point now where there's been so much uh, excitement, uh, so much promise with some of these technologies. People have actually had time to implement them and see them in practice. And they're starting to get that like voice in their head that says, maybe this is too much. Maybe this is not the right thing. And so uh, I think, you know, a lot of people have actually um, uh, spoken and written about this before, but uh, just the timing, I think, is such that people are ready to, to hear this message. Yeah. Well, we have short memories uh, as software engineers. And so it's nice to, to hear things, even if you've had that thought or read that before bring them back up either to a new generation of people who haven't thought about these things or to those of us who have and have forgotten that uh, principle and, and moved on. I feel it's a key thing to keep being reminded of things like this, you yep. know, to, to even go back to reread books that were pivotal to you or go read, reread or be reminded of things like this, you know, in your career to, to sort of jolt you back into reality. Like, Oh, stop chasing shiny objects. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've got a, it, it's got to be a counterforce against the marketing machine of, of hype and new technologies, right? Like there's a lot of money behind things like Mongo. Uh, and so you've got this like constant force online. You don't even realize they're inventing acronyms and they're like, they're, they're sponsoring conferences. And it, it kind of, it's just kind of subliminal that there's this um, active paid force to get you to buy into the new technologies. But there's nobody who's like, putting money behind Postgres and uh, sponsoring conferences and, you know, got a marketing team inventing uh, flashy acronyms. 
so we need that we need that reminder just as a counterforce to uh, to capitalism in a way. I was at uh, OSCON in London, and there was actually a Postgres company in the vendors area. So there are people out there um, doing different things, but yeah, there's there's voices that are louder than others, or more well funded. Sure. Before I get too far into the uh, the weeds here, why don't you just give us the gist of this article? I think a lot of it is right there in the title. You are not Google, mm-hmm. um, but but give us the high level breakdown, and then we'll go into the details of your ways of fighting against this, and and we'll go from there. But give us the gist. Yeah, so the gist is that there are some amazing technologies out there that are great for only a tiny, tiny fraction of companies. And we see that they're great, but we forget to consider, are they great for us? And this is a theme across uh, computer science and software engineering. Uh, It's true for uh, newer data stores, distributed data stores like uh, Dynamo and its legacy, Cassandra, React, and so on. Uh, it's true for uh, large-scale data flow engines like MapReduce and its legacy, Hadoop and Spark and so on. Uh, but also true of, of other things like software engineering practices, service-oriented architecture, where uh, it's been amazingly successful in a very specific context. That very specific context is not your context. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, we've just ended up as a community pretending like we do uh, index every website uh, in the world, uh, or you know, we do have tens of thousands of engineers whose teams need to be split up and and interfaced. Um, so the post just pulls together some of these um, some of these trends that I've been seeing a lot of mm-hmm. um, some of this uh, overexcitement about these technologies and these practices, and just um, uh, uh, threads them together like that. This is a question that I posed, I think it was with James Pierce of Facebook, coming from their side, especially as we cover the open source ecosystem and seeing you know, Facebook open source its tools uh, to lots of coverage, to lots of interest, and um, to lots of people start to use them. And the question that I posed to him at the time was, do you guys feel a responsibility for you know putting out their tools that may not solve other people's problems, but because of the massive interest and because it's Facebook or because it's Google or whichever company, um, they receive an outsized portion of developer mindshare. Mm. And and he said that's something that they think about for sure. And they try to address it uh, by way of documentation and giving talks and explaining like where they're coming at this problem from. But um, the article that you wrote and this this principle of, you know, you are not Facebook you are not large company X really puts the shift back onto the individual developer, not Mm -hmm. on the company that's open sourcing Cassandra or putting out their Mongo or whatever, but to us to actually from the other side, not get swept away by the hype. Yeah, totally. I mean, you've got to expect that that companies like that act in their own self-interest, right? Like they're they're not going to open source something unless they think they're getting value from that, whether that's being a magnet for engineers, uh, getting just uh, good PR generally, uh, inviting contributors and having, you know, offloading some of the work of maintenance, flushing out bugs and that kind of thing. Uh, they don't do it out of the goodness of their hearts. Sometimes it's just for retention, right? The, the engineers there, um, they want to have their work seen publicly. And they, they want to get the recognition for that. And so, you know, Facebook or a company like that 
will, will, will support that, you know, to keep their engineers happy. But the objective is not to solve your problem. You've got to solve your problem. Uh, mm -hmm. It's great that they it's great that they provide these tools for you, but the onus is on you to to read the paper, read the docs, read read whatever it is that's available. Obviously, it's open source, so read the source code if you can, uh, and and really stop and think about your problem. Consider the other um, uh, technologies that might do as good a job. Uh, really be honest with yourself about what you need and why you're making this decision, and then pull the trigger. Uh, you know, you can't you can't just trust that because it's Facebook, it's going to be good for you. Uh, probably if it's if it's good for Facebook, it's not good for you. Hmm. We just recently shipped a show with Gerhard Lazu where we talked about uh, the real world situation of deploying Chainsaw.com. And th that episode has received a lot of praise, Adam, because it was focused around a real world problem. Uh, it wasn't just tools. It was about the ha the why and the what and the how. And Gerhard really brings a uh, just a level and oh, logical method to, to to the way he does things. One thing that I've been cognizant of, Adam, I'm curious if you are with the changelog itself, because as we cover open source software and the people that make it, um, you know, do we sometimes contribute to the hype? And yeah. how do we how do we not, you know, just be uh, because we like to cheerlead. We like to root people on. We love to see success. And uh, sometimes I wonder if that's something that uh, we have done, which is to, you know, just make more noise and less signal. You're a thing I don't about know. That? I think, yeah, that's a great, you know, thing to think about because there's times whenever I feel we cover things because it's it's our duty at, in our position and our responsibility to share the news, right? And the news is right. what's happening. And it's it's similar to Twitter and a retweet. Did my retweet of that mean that I agree, disagree? Uh, you know, does it, do I represent, does it represent me or my feeling or did I retweet it because I wanted you to also see it? And I kind of feel like it's on us to sort of share and it's on the audience to, as Oz is saying here in this, in this article is like, hey, you've got to, read the docs. You've got to read the fine print. Yeah. It's, it's us bringing, you know, some of the sifting through curating what's happening out there and to a degree disseminating it, but not to every finite point. And I feel like that's, that's sort of our game is, is, yeah. is that focus. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, you guys, we need the news. We need to know what's, uh, what's out there and what's, um, what's just arrived that we don't know about. Uh, but if, Y'all, if the newsbringers can give us a bit of the historical context, I think that goes a long way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some of, uh, some of the people I've spoken to, they don't realize that uh, Cassandra is based off of Dynamo. Um, so, you know, just for this, the sake of your, your listeners, uh, this guy, Avnesh Lakshman, who worked on uh, Dynamo at Amazon, uh, moved to Facebook and and really re-implemented Dynamo at Facebook, and that's that's what became Cassandra. Some changes, you know, he he got to work on the same system twice, um, so some you know might you might say improvements, but it's it's very similar to Dynamo, which also means that it's very well documented. Um, there's a great paper, uh, and so when somebody delivers news about Cassandra, which I guess is not news anymore, but there's going to be Cassandra's legacy as well. When someone delivers news about Cassandra, uh, giving the context of, hey, this derived from, from Dynamo, 
Dynamo was created specifically so that uh, Amazon could have a high write availability shopping cart because they lose money if you can't write to the shopping cart, but it's not such a big deal if the shopping cart is inconsistent if you see your item twice in the cart. As soon as you hear that, that that was the reason for Dynamo's creation, that they published a paper on it and you can read it and learn a lot about um, the rationale and the context, and that became Cassandra, well then the news about Cassandra is less newsy and more like, okay, this is you know now an open source version of this thing that worked really well for, for Amazon. Uh, so if I have a problem like Amazon's problem, I can use Cassandra. Right. So, I, you know, obviously that takes a lot more work and maybe news is going to stop at like a one or two sentence uh, historical background. But just being like, hey, hey, shiny new technology, Cassandra, it's great because, um, you know, it scales. Uh, that's that's uh, less helpful than um, than we as as providers, yeah. and reverberators of news could be. Yeah. Well, there's two two sides of us, really. We got our quick, poignant Twitter slash a uh, weekly email that we ship out and then we have deeper, more personal, more, um, more human, I guess. Contextual. Yeah. Contextual, uh, with the podcast. And I think there's times when we hit, let's say we newsjack something or we hype train something, you know, just because it's on everybody else's minds and mm -hmm. it makes sense for us to cover it. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're not exactly advocating, Hey, you know, because this shiny new tool is shiny and new doesn't mean it's the, thing you should choose it's still you know we're doing our best to mm -hmm. to come as as uh interested curious technologists mm -hmm. developers and hopefully providing context to other people's choices and what fits them for their problems yeah the real danger is is the cargo cult mentality mm -hmm. uh, as you point out oz in your article and your call, so we're going to go through, you have an acronym of your own. Talk about marketing hype, Oz. You're, you're uh, hype here. Come on. <laughs> Unfat. Unfat. Uh, which we'll go through the, the finer points of that. <laughs> I think there's some great advice in there, even though I got some qualms with your acronym itself, because I, uh -huh. I can't help but bike shed. Um, <laughs> I think what your, your overall call here, besides just to point out that this is a, a phenomenon inside our community, which is problematic, as people end up with the wrong tools for the job and don't find out until much later and it's much more expensive to reverse that problem. Um, but your overall call is for critical thinking or really you just say, I mean, that's the, I guess that's the T in your unfat there is think. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so I guess my question to you is what is it about us as software engineering community that leads us so we're so susceptible to the new shiny and we don't put critical reasoning and of course, I'm speaking generally here. So if you're a critical thinker and you you always make the right decisions, I'm not talking about you, but maybe it's just me. I'm easily just take the the shiny new choice um, without putting it through that rigorous thought process. What what is it about developers that makes us this way? You know, I don't I don't think we're actually that bad. I think we do strive to make good choices and to be thoughtful. Uh, but we, we miss the mark a lot of the time, particularly the more junior engineers, the, the people who are, uh, well, you know, I say that, but I, I still have this problem and I still need to be vigilant about it. So, so don't take that as me saying, Hey, you, you youngsters, you're the ones who are struggling to do this. I do, I do this as well. But, um, there's one thing I've observed about the software engineering community, which is that we love fast feedback loops. We love hacking and getting the feedback. And that's in some contexts, uh, excellent. 
that's something that we can use as a process to do really good work. Just a little bit of input, get some output, have a little REPL going, some some quick feedback, uh, hot reloading, whatever. Um, so this this kind of thing is great uh, in some contexts, but in other contexts, you actually just need to sit back, turn off the computer, uh, get a piece of paper, be thoughtful, um, and and really reason about the problem. And that uh, switch from fast feedback, fast input, uh, see your results quickly, get that like uh, adrenaline rush of uh, building something directly to, hey, let's slow down, let's take notes, let's question uh, what we're actually doing. Um, we have something that's working, but is it the best way that we could do this? It's kind of counter to that fast feedback loop thing that, that yeah. works well for us in other contexts. I, I would wonder if it's similar to and this may be very provocative if it's similar to an addiction, because I wonder if you can connect something like this to maybe something like where people are addicted to Instagram or addicted to the, the feed, the the next thing coming where it becomes uh, the reason why you do it is less about wise choices as a developer and more about our actual minds as human beings is that we get this rush. You use the word adrenaline rush I wonder if it's connected to something that's far above simply being a developer, if it's just a human flaw. Mm. That's above my pay grade right there. I think we're really lucky to have a craft where we can be totally engrossed in it, uh, where we can get that feedback, where we have joy uh, from it. And it kind of stops feeling like work at those times, which is amazing, right? I'm sure you right. have this experience where you've got this big problem to solve. You sit down, you start writing, and then you look up, your tea's cold, uh, or your coffee's cold. Uh, it's like nighttime, you're hungry. Uh, you totally don't know what happened for the last 10 hours. That's, that's an amazing, amazing feeling. But uh, sometimes that's not what we're supposed to be doing, right? Sometimes it's not... Uh, just sitting down and hacking on something and getting that like physiological experience of doing this, like rock climbing or, you know, tennis or something. Um, some, sometimes we actually need to be more aware and less in the flow. Uh, we need to slow down. We need to counter our first instincts. We need to, we need to question ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the best engineers can do that and they can switch between those. Um, and the rest of us are working up to that standard. While we're speculating, I'll, I'll throw another thing into the ring. This is something that I've thought of with regards to this particular problem is perhaps it's part of the uh, revolt against waterfall methodology, you know, the uh -huh. agile movement where it's like, you know, head west, young man. It's like, you know, uh, uh -huh. let's just get going and we'll figure out as we go. And we found out that that's uh, a better way of building software than thinking through every possible, you know, thing way up front for six months and then, you know, being done with the design phase and moving on to the to the build phase because we didn't six months ago we didn't know what we needed and we we realized that as you build software things change and it's in motion as you're building it and so that perhaps leads to uh, well let's just get going like I'm just going to pick a tool and yes. uh, I'm going to build it and then you know we'll we'll figure that out when we get there and you know as as with most things like the 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 true uh, best choices are in the gray areas where you want to move fast, but you know, you have to, you have to slow down to think as well. Right. And, yes. uh, you can save yourself a lot of effort by putting some thought and some preparation, um, and still, you know, doing agile software development. So you don't have to just fly into everything. Mm. I do feel like there is this push to always be moving motion creates emotion. 
Um, mm-hmm. Emotion shows progress, fix it along the way. You've got a race to, to, to do. So why not just get in the car? Even if it has no wheels, we'll put them on during the race kind of feeling, uh, you know, and it's like, well, we needed four wheels, not two. And you're halfway through the race and everybody else is, you know, already finished because they slowed down enough to think how many wheels do we need? And I feel yeah. like that's, you're right where it's like motion is, is sort of the, the anti where it's, you're always forced to go forward and forward is progress. Have you guys seen Rich Hickey's talk, uh, Hammock Driven Development? Yes. I haven't, I have not personally watched it, even though I know it's one of his greatest hits as, That's uh, true. uh as documented by, uh, Rich Hickey's greatest hits on change.com. Oh, it's, it's totally, it's totally worth it. It should definitely be, you know, maybe number two or three. He's got some great ones, but Hammock Driven Development is up there, even just for the name, right? Like you've got Hammock Driven Development and you're like, Hmm, what else is there driven development? What is this an alternative to? And mm-hmm. um, you, you have this amazing visual as well of uh, this uh, senior software engineer, someone really respected at the company who's, you know, got his uh, sprint planning points or whatever, is about to start work for the week and try and get his points. And the first thing he does is string up a hammock, just like sits there. Nice. Maybe a couple of hours later, comes down, makes a coffee, goes back. I mean, this is, uh, this is how a lot of good software gets written um, through, mm-hmm. through thinking, uh, through first thinking about it. Uh, and Agile doesn't leave that much room for that, or at least it doesn't encourage that. Uh, you need to fight to, to make room for yourself to think before you, you know, psych yourself up for the week and get your sprint points. Uh, and so, you know, Waterfall by default... Uh, encourages that it encourages the pre-planning and obviously right. it has a lot of other downsides and that's why as a community the we've swung the pendulum away from that but uh you know now the flip side is that it's up to us to really stop and think coming up after the break we talk about unfat this is in Oz's words, I promise. It's a dorky acronym for you to follow the next time you find yourself Googling some new technology to build or rebuild your architecture around. We break down each letter of the acronym. We talk about its clear intent for humor. But more importantly, Oz shares some serious wisdom to consider when evaluating new technologies. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Datadog. Datadog is cloud scale monitoring that lets you track your dynamic infrastructure and applications. It brings you visibility into every part of your infrastructure, plus APM for monitoring your application's performance, dashboarding, collaboration tools, and alerts that let you develop your own workflow for observability and incident response. Datadog integrates seamlessly with all of your apps and systems from Amazon Web Services, Slack, to Docker, so you can get visibility in minutes. Go to changelaw.com slash Datadog to get started for free. Also, our listeners get a free Datadog t-shirt when you start your trial and create your first dashboard. Once again, changelaw.com slash Datadog and get started for free. And by Bugsnag. Bugsnag improves the task of troubleshooting errors by making it more enjoyable and less time consuming. 
For example, when an error occurs, your team can get notified via Slack, you can see diagnostic information on the error, you can identify the developer who committed the code, and Bugsnax integration with Trello, Jira, GitHub, and many other collaboration tools makes it easy to assign and track bugs as they're being fixed. We have a special offer for our listeners. Head to bugsnag.com slash changelog. Try out all the features completely free for 60 days. Once again, bugsnag.com slash changelog. So the acronym you came up with was UNFAT. U-N-P-H-A-T. And it says, uh, your article says, the next time you find yourself Googling some cool new technology to build or rebuild your architecture around, I urge you to stop and follow unfat instead. Um, I'll just lay out the words here, the, the, the brief synopsis. We go into the details. I'll tell you, the one I enumerates the one I struggle with here because it's not. It's, <laughs> uh, anyways, understand, understand the problem. Uh, the N is enumerate multiple candidate solutions. That's a stretch. Uh, but I get it. The, the, the P is, uh, read the paper. If you find, you know, if you find a candidate solution, um, the H is determine the historical context, which you've, you referenced in this conversation as well. And then the A is weigh advantages against disadvantages. And then finally the T, as we mentioned previously is think, how'd you come up with this list and, uh, this, this acronym you got? I'll be honest. This is a uh, pretty tongue in cheek. And uh, the way that I came up with the acronym was to first think of the dorkiest acronym that I could (laughs) and then fit everything else to it. So I was really (laughs) pushing for uncool. Uncool was 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 tough because the two O's. That would have been good, though. Yeah. And unfat. I mean, I just needed to massage it a little bit. And enumerate was one of those things that I massaged. (laughs) Well, it's funny because fat, P-H-A-T, is that still something like, is that still in the zeitgeist? I don't know. I I mean, I know that. It translate well too, you know? I I actually had to ask a millennial about that. I was like, if I say fat, do you know what that means? And it was like, yeah, I've heard that word. Uh, I think you can use it. Uh, So I went ahead with it. And here we are. That's so funny. I asked a millennial. Was how you up? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, like uh, I, I, I had a couple of people help me edit this, and one was like, you know, really doing copy editing, and the other mm-hmm. one was like uh, helping me, you know, empathize a little bit with my with my younger readers. So that was yeah. his input. There, that's okay. So you started out with the dorkiest way to do it, which means that huh. you're, as you said, tongue in cheek too. So you're not trying to be overly serious you're trying to make a point but memorable yeah in a memorable way that's like you know hey come on this i, I don't really know how, how do you how do you mean by that like it's okay to be unfat you don't have to be fat phat phat i feel like i have to say that every time since we're audio only <laughs> i kind of have to go back in my own mind because i'm you know i'm 38 i have to think about like was is fat phat that's fat that was like saying that's cool so right saying unfat is saying like uncool just to give everyone context who may not be, they're probably scouring to like urban dictionary to, to get, to get in a context of that. It's like, this is saying uncool. Right. I think Chris Tucker said it best on either. It was either on uh, money talks or what was the movie he did with Jackie Chan? Um, maybe it wasn't Friday. Help me out here, guys. Jackie uh, Chan. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, I know the movie. It's well, comedy slash. Yeah, there was it was there's a sequel. Oh, it's gonna be one of those shows where people are emailing us. Uh, hold I'm tight, everybody. I can't. I can't. Uh, 
Oz, you can't help us out on this one. Chris no, Tucker. It, it was it was with Jackie Rush Chan. Hour. Rush hour. Rush hour. Rush hour. Thank you. Oh, that would have killed me. Uh, and he said he said P H A T. Pretty hot and tempting was the way that Chris Tucker described fat. You remember that, uh, Adam? So, Probably not. So we reacronymed it. I didn't realize it was originally an, an acronym. I think it was just a statement of like what's cool. Like it was just a word that, you know, kind of an appropriation of the word FAT. And I think he then backronymed that during the movie. Uh, now I don't have I don't have the full history in front of me, but uh I do have that much. So he said it meant pretty hot and tempting. Um but now now you have unfat. So bring us back Un-hot around to your Unpretty hot and tempting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good context. I mean it's it's it goes back to that what Oz said before, which was give something some history, right? Give something some context. And I think that's just an interesting way to to unravel this and bring some humor to it as well. Yeah. But what you're calling for here, first of all, is to understand the problem. And one of the things that you state there is that people tend to think in solution domains and not in problem domains. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah. So when I say problem domain, I really mean your problem. So uh, your business or your project or your customers really thinking about uh, what it is that makes this your problem and not somebody else's problem. That's really the problem domain, the facts and context around that. The solution domain is the set of tools that you could use or the architectures that you could use, really what it might look like, all the candidates of um, how you might solve this. Now, people think that uh, spending time in the solution domain and considering, hey, should I use language A or language B? That's what the main decision is about. Uh, And you're going to end up there, sure. But most of your time should really be spent asking questions, understanding your own problem, probing that as much as you can. And then out of that, you'll be surprised how frequently the solution will just fall out. We're like, oh, so we expect to have this happen. We expect to have 10,000 customers use it this much every day over this period of time. And uh, every write needs to persist. Uh, well, you know, then there's one solution for that, and it's this. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I very rarely see people spending too much time thinking about the problem. And I, I very frequently see people spending too much time thinking about the end solution what the technology may be at the end if you start to go down that path as well it's just a trap you start googling you start reading articles there's a debate on reddit or something you get drawn into that whole thing and they don't know about your problem only you do so uh really if there's one thing that you take from this this conversation or this article it's understand the problem just just spend the time ask the questions dig into it uh everything else should flow much more naturally after that yeah. So next up, you say enumerate a p- multiple candidate solutions. So not just your favorite uh, tool of choice. Now I start to get uh, conviction on this one because when it comes to data stores, I just tend to reach for Postgres. And uh, because it's general purpose, I'm generally okay. Um, but, you know, perhaps I'm being uh, lazy in that regard. Uh, how many candidate solutions is, is sufficient? And why is it such an important aspect of being unfat? Oh, gosh. <laughs> You're struggling, huh? I'm <laughs> struggling. <laughs> I like it though. So, I hate it. I like it. Uh, so, how many are sufficient? I don't know. I I would challenge you to at least think of one, and at least like honestly give it a give it a bit of a whirl, um, because the temptation is always like, 
I know this first thing, this default thing, and therefore it's always the best. And I'm not saying you need to think of five necessarily, but at least like yank yourself out of that confirmation bias, that prejudice that you have for the thing that you first thought of. And uh, just look at it from one other perspective. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe after that, you're going to think about a, another one or another one. But if all you do is temporarily yank yourself out of this like um, deer in the headlights kind of fixation with your language or your operating system or your whatever it is, data store, um, that's great. So maybe with Postgres, you're not thinking, hey, do I use MySQL instead? It wouldn't make sense. But maybe you're right. thinking... Hey, do I, I really need to actually persist this data? Is that really a part of the problem? Um, could I store it in a file? Could I store it in memory? Um, so, you know, maybe it's that kind of thinking instead that, that really gives you the different perspective. Uh, do I really need to solve this problem? Can I just call somebody up and uh, talk to them about it instead? Um, but maybe at the end you use Postgres. I don't know. Right. Still, it's just, a, it's just a, something to pull you out of the default path. Yeah. Any examples where you enumerated the multiple candidate solutions, as you mentioned here, and and you were very thankful for doing that that task, that that discipline? Yeah. So I, I have a story in there and um, the company will uh, uh, I, I will not I will not name the company, but um, this actually happened with them. So they were using Kafka. Um, they. The first design of their system was not very good, and they responded to that by really over-engineering the second system. And so it was um, it was Kafka and Samza and all these like really excellent technologies that operate a way way larger scale than them. And um, really through a conversation with one of the engineers um, at the at the company, uh, we ended up with um, a, a design that would have. Uh, well, you know, more of a traditional relational data store, but which could have honestly been somebody writing into a book. Um, and uh, that's actually the design that I pushed for. So I actually pushed for uh, the data store being somebody receives an email and physically writes it down, maybe in a couple of books. Um, so so this, this kind of thing. Maybe, yeah, redundancy. Uh, or maybe, you know, you have it in a spreadsheet and a physical book. Uh, but uh, And I don't think they went for this design ultimately. But uh, so maybe I'm not exactly asking, answering your question of um, when I was personally thankful for it. But um, you know, well, this I, is, I just this mean to, to advocate for something means that you must have had some sort of reward from doing the discipline. So I'm just wondering what was some reward you personally experienced from it? Yeah, I mean, you know, just the satisfaction of ultimately being right. I mean, maybe that's go. petty, but uh, yeah, I live for that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with wanting to be, be right. Yeah, must be right. So I think, uh, you know, this a lot of the time comes down to um, just talking yourself down from the ledge. Uh, really, you get excited about something. Oh, really excited about functional programming. Closure is a really well-designed uh, language. I'm going to use Closure for this project. And then uh, one one path is to go down that and really feed off your enthusiasm and write your system in Closure. And the other one is to say, hey, but I've actually been writing Python for five years, and it'll be fine if I write in Python. Uh, and we'll, as a company, do better. Uh, people will be able to understand me. We'll know how to deploy it uh, if I write in Python. That's the that's the kind of situation where you look back and you think, oh, God, I'm glad that I didn't uh, go with my first instincts on that. So given the next point, I have a question for you, Jared. Yes. And since you're using Postgres as your 
as your example here. Yes. Um, if we follow what Oz says, he says to at least give one additional candidate solution to, to look at and enumerate over. Right. And then once you've chosen that, let's assume you chose Postgres. And so point three is consider that candidate solution and then read the paper if there is one. Yes. And I just Googled you know, Postgres paper and found a 36 page document from the University of California, Berkeley. I know and it very well. You know it very well, I'm sure. You, so this is my question. <laughs> so have you read this paper, the implementation uh, of Postgres? That's funny you asked that because I was just thinking as we come to this third point, you know, I was doing so well up until this one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe I'm coming out here as a, a, a not a great developer because when it comes to reading the paper, I'm trying to think of any papers that I've read, you know, with this particular goal in mind of like vetting a tool where I've gone and said, I'm going to read the paper. And uh, no, I never read that Postgres document uh, to answer your question. Um, so I'm just wondering how many people, you know, maybe I'm the only one here, but how many people will actually do this one? And, uh, I don't know. Is this, uh, aspirational number three, read the paper or is this, should we all be doing this every time? Look, I, I think if it's a brand new technology or if it's like five to 10 years old, yeah, you should read the paper. If there's like one key paper, you know, if you can go and read the dynamo paper or something, read the mm -hmm. paper. Uh, because you're going to get so much useful context out of that. It's just going to, I mean, so, you know, context is I, I, I teach databases. Um, I have a lot of students who use these technologies and then they read the paper uh, for the first time with me because I assign it as reading. And so I see that. I, I see their eyes light up and then say, oh, really? This is, you know, Amazon uses it for that. They, they want uh, high write availability. Well, we're using it for, you know, for high read availability. Uh, this explains why we're getting this inconsistency. They read the paper, they get the context, and immediately they switch on and, and understand it at a deeper level than other people at their company who've been using that technology for longer, but who, who just don't have the context. So I think for a newer technology, yeah, it, particularly if there's one key paper, the MapReduce paper or something, uh, that's fairly straightforward to read. For something like Postgres, because it's older and it's got a, a really long legacy, that's harder and you need a little bit of a guide, like a trail guide. Um, Googling and finding a paper, maybe it's good, maybe it's not. Um, but if you've got someone to point you in the right direction and say, okay, Postgres has a long legacy, really it's based on system R uh, in the 70s, there are some like key ideas. Well, I, I shouldn't say based on, a lot of people would be angry with me if they heard that. Uh, but, but a lot of the, the key ideas in these um, traditional relational database management systems are from system R in the 70s. And so those are well documented and there are some famous papers there that really um, get, you know, if you're trying to understand the optimizer, um, there, you know, there's, uh, there's one paper there that's still required reading in most databases courses. Um, the, the, it's about the Selinger optimization model. It's a Selinger paper. Uh, if you want to understand how Postgres really optimizes your query, you want to start by reading that paper from the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and there are a couple of key papers like that, but it's, they're hard to find, right? You didn't, you didn't Google uh, Selinger optimization model, you Googled Postgres paper. Um, so, uh, you, you know, having a little bit of guidance there helps a lot. Hopefully you've got senior folk at your company who can point you in the right direction. If you say, hey, I really want to understand this at a foundational level, hopefully they'll point you to those kinds of resources and uh, not Stack Overflow uh, questions. But yeah, it is tough. 
for sure. You need you need discipline. Uh, you need some spare time at work, ideally. You, you need to be at the kind of workplace where you can say, hey, I'm going to read this paper for a couple of hours to get a better sense of um, what's going on here and for people to be cool with that. I, I would argue, too, that you shouldn't have to say, hey, I'm going to. I think you should. Maybe that's, maybe that's too helpful, but you shouldn't be treated like a child and where you have to ask for permission to say, let me read a paper to get more. Uh, knowledge on what we're going to do. You, you, I mean, I don't know, <laughs> but you don't get any, well, you don't get any sprint points for reading a paper. That's so that's true. Well, I think we're, you know, back yeah, to the whole waterfall agile, we're forced to produce and producing this uh -huh. code. So, or commits at least, you know, this might be a good time to mention the papers. We love repo on GitHub and that community, because what I was thinking there, Oz, as you were talking is it would be great to have a centralized curated place where you could just come and say, okay, when it comes to big table or when it comes to map reduce, this is the paper and it's mm -hmm. right here. And I was thinking, yeah, I've heard of papers we love. And so I was looking it up and actually that's close to what they're doing. They have like a data store section and this is uh, you know, big table database of dynamo. So you can find all those papers in one centralized place curated by a community. And so that takes out some of the legwork that um, may otherwise prohibit you from finding, you know, the best or the canonical paper for this particular subject or tool. I'm glad you brought that up because they deserve a shout out. Um, great community overall, uh, particularly uh, New York and San Francisco. Um, incredible organizers. Really would encourage folk to go to those meetups if uh, there's one in their city. Great, great community, great turnout. There's always a thoughtful speaker focusing on one paper. Uh, but then the, the people in that audience are going to be the folk where you can ask a question like that. Hey, I'm trying to understand this thing. Um, what would you read if you were me or what would you what would you be thinking about if you were me? Um, it's a totally different community to the standard meetups. Uh, so, you know, big, big ups to, to them. Yeah. For the listeners, if there's an easy thing you want to do right here right now while you're listening, you can actually tweet at love a paper. And that has their repo link in it. So if you just want to say, hey, heard this on the change log, tweet that. It'll at least point uh, any friends you have in the right direction. And we'll obviously include a link in the show notes too. Absolutely. Oz, moving on in your checklist here, the, the fourth letter, the H, is determine the historical context. And I feel like that keys into number three, the paper. Mm -hmm, um, because really, you, when you read the paper, you're probably going to tease out the historical context. But the idea there is is what you've said previously, where if you found out why Cassandra was such a key tool that was abstracted out uh, because of their you know necessity for high availability rights, well, now you know why they built it the way they did, and now you know whether or not it fits your need or not. Yeah, absolutely. If you can't find it from the paper, find it somewhere else or just yeah. just dig dig and ask those questions for yourself. Like, you know, why did Google build MapReduce? Like what problem was it solving? What hardware were they using? How much were they paying for it? And how, how much was that an issue? And yeah. how much of that fits? That uh, that totally changes the equation. You know, whereas if you just Google, like, is MapReduce a good tool for this job? You're probably going to find the answer. Yes, somewhere. somewhere right. Somebody said that and you know, you're ready to read it. Well, it'll be just maybe just a good moment to add a little self plug. Another place that's great for historical context is podcasts. So find a podcast about the topic. Uh, that's one of the things we do. Like when we just recently had a show about Kubernetes and we asked those kind of questions like where did this, why was this born inside of Google? Why was it open source? What are the reasonings behind it? And so that's a great way to get historical context if you can't find it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And um, heck, if we ever ship that, 
uh, transcripts feature, Adam, you could even just go read the historical <laughs> trial. <laughs> right here on the show, you want to, uh, I'm just, uh, uh, we, we do, we need to get that out there. I just got all depressed. Oh right man, don't show. do it. Don't do it. Okay. Listeners, we have transcripts for since episode 200 of the change log. And so that's a lot. That's like 54 plus shows at this point, maybe more since this show is probably more like episode 260 or something like that. So long story short, we have full transcripts. We just not, we just haven't shipped the feature yet. It's because we have other problems we're trying to solve. It is. And that's okay. It is. That's okay. We'll, we'll just keep telling ourselves that. One until we ship it. <laughs> that's, that's the bandit. That's what makes it okay. Next two points here, just to finish up your acronym before we uh, take another quick break, is uh, weigh the advantages against the disadvantages. You want to expand upon that, or do you think that's self-explanatory, Oz? Look, it was mostly to get the A in there, uh, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, really, like, there are going to be trade-offs. Uh, really, the main thing that we do as engineers is decide which trade-offs to accept. And sometimes we're honest about that, and sometimes we're not. So to keep going with the Dynamo Cassandra example, you, you trade off consistency. Maybe you want consistency. Uh, probably you want consistency. Uh, and so just, just being um, aware of that uh, quid pro quo is, is what I'm saying there. You get the advantages, but that comes with disadvantages. I like the second half of that, though, which was determine what was deprioritized to achieve what was prioritized. So I mean, it makes sense, advantages, disadvantages, but in that context, it's like, you know, it's, it's about determining what was more important versus what wasn't as important. And yeah. does that align with your goals or your problem? Well, it probably goes back to, uh, who was it? Was it Fred Brooks, uh, b- book? There's no silver bullet. This, this, we're always looking for the panacea, the perfect solution that, you know, the silver bullet to solve all our problems. And what we find out is there aren't any. And everything is a trade-off, and that's what engineering is. It's picking the correct set of trade-offs for your problem domain, as you laid out, Oz. And so absolutely, if you're going to prioritize something, you have to deprioritize something else. And so knowing those things before you go into the tool is just think, man. That's the number six, think. I would almost (laughs) think this is like uh, par for the course, though. Obviously, you want to think, right? Did you feel like you had had to drive that one home, Oz? With an exclamation mark. Yes, you know, really, I want the whole article to just be think with an exclamation mark, and that's it. Just that one word. Uh, but uh, I don't, you know, I just, I ran that that by somebody, and he was like, yeah, that's not going to do well, just an article with one word. So I fleshed it out a bit. But that's the that's the core thing here, really. Like, I just think the title, You Are Not Google, is much more uh, sticky than just think. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm glad I went with uh, this then. But uh uh, you know, this is the main thing, and uh, many of us have have said this. We do need to say it because we see thoughtlessness a lot. Uh, you know, even we're reminding ourselves to be thoughtful as well when we say this. Our writing code is not really about writing, right? Or writing a book is not really about writing. Uh, thinking is the thing that we do mostly. Like mostly, we're paid to think, and eventually that gets translated to 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 running code. Um, but the, the fact is, when you look around, most people are jumping to the implementation. Uh, most people are jumping to a technology choice. Most people are jumping to their way of, of writing code. Uh, we're not thinking. The thing that we know uh, works in software engineering is thinking. Everything else is contextual. Everything else, there are trade-offs. 
thinking is the one thing where you can reliably get better results by doing it. That's awesome. Oz, thanks so much for taking the time to write this post, to come on the show and share so much of what you know about software development, all the wisdom you've shared. So really appreciate your time, man. Hey, thank you. All right. Thank you for tuning into the change Well, this week to learn more about Oz and the work he's doing at Bradfield School of Computer Science. Check out bradfieldcs.com. Also, I mentioned at the top of the show how to subscribe to Changelog Weekly. Make sure you do that. Head to changelog.com weekly. That's where we share everything that hits our open source radar. Special thanks to our sponsors this week, GoCD, Datadog, and our new sponsor, Bugsnag. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode cloud servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support the show. This show is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo. It's edited by Jonathan Youngblood. And the awesome music you've been hearing is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more episodes just like this at changelog.com or by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.